Need a quick hit of Marketing Smarts inspiration? Here it is. We have lifted portions of our Marketing Smarts episodes for those of you who need a quick jolt of marketing savviness right now. Refer to the description for how to find a longer form version. And with that, here it is. All right. So our next segment for all of you listeners out there is in the trenches, again, where we give real world examples that might be specific to industries and situations. And in this case, they're probably pretty personal to Anne and me. But you should be able to see yourself in them and the broad application for you to be able to, one, digest and then go put into action. So the first in the trenches, give a good and bad example from your experience of culture. This could get interesting. This could get interesting, but we're going we're gonna to keep it above board and, <laughs> and educational. Let's just offer that caveat and <laughs> reminder to ourselves. Um, so I will go first here. So without mentioning any company or, or any names, um, I would say that as I reflect back, you know, one of the very best teams, and there have been several that I ever worked on, and, and it wasn't just because it was an opportunity for me to build a team. It really was because it was the right – it was just the right time in so many ways. We had so many good people and good people that we wanted to bring into the organization. Um, the culture of the organization was really thriving. We focused very hard on that culture and preserving it. And there were some things that I would say from the outside might have looked kind of ridiculous to people, but it was just so important to us that – we felt like we had to do it. So, for example, um, my boss and I, because we were identified as two people that really were great at identifying candidates that were a good cultural fit, were in all of the interviews for the organization. And at that time, we could swing it because we weren't 100 people, right? We were high 20s, I think. But we were kind of the culture police. And so we would interview typically together because that dynamic seemed to work really well. And we were not assessing skill sets. And in some cases, we wouldn't have been able to because they were in a completely different department than us. But we were trying to figure out, were these the right people for the organization, not necessarily for the job. And we did that for a couple of years, and it just really nicely helped us grow, but also find the balance of preserving all the great things about the company while also allowing these new people to come in and bring new life into things. And the synergies that were built, um, the diligence that we had around that, and the fact that we just continually were bringing in the right people just made everybody more excited to bring in more people versus kind of what happens sometimes, I think, is that like us versus them, old versus new mentality, which I've also been a part of, and what can happen there. And then I think, you know, we had um, directive from the top. So the owners of the organization understood that there was something magical about the culture and that a lot of what we did could be viewed as a commodity. And we were very honest about the fact that our culture, you know, I mean, we got feedback all the time that people loved working with our people, versus, mm -hmm. you know, and our work was creative and fun. And, you know, in a corporate environment, when you come to the agency, you know, that should be a good time. But just um, respect and appreciation and a lot of compliments for who we were hiring and, you know, what they were providing beyond just the work that we were doing. And then the other thing I would say is, you know, one of the testaments to that in my mind, you know, that might be rose colored glasses, you know, something I look back on and I'm like, oh, that was a great time, you know, all of that. But the bonds are still there. And mm -hmm. I think that if you can, you know, spend some time reflecting on the teams you were a part of, I mean, just the other day, I had a former client reach out who I'm 
um, have continued to stay in touch with and am and pretty tight with at the moment. And she was asking for something that I didn't have. And I reached out to two of the people that reported to me at that point in time on the team that had worked on the business. And within minutes, I heard back from both of them. And they both went through and kind of dug through. And unfortunately, it was kind of a needle in a haystack situation. So I wasn't asking them to spend a bunch of time, but just you know, happenstance if they had it. But the fact that they got back to me right away made me feel really good about the fact that we're still there for each other, mm-hmm. even though we might not see each other and worked work with each other every day. So that's my really good example. I mean, just great people, but also people committed. Um, the ability from the top to have the allowance to do things a little differently that might not have been super efficient, but really paid out for a period of time in that organization where we were doing the right things and we were humming along. And then on the other side, and I'll give you my bad example, and I'll hand it over to Anne, again, without naming uh, an organization, and I'll try to be even less Uh, give clues even less than I did before so I don't get myself in trouble. But I worked in an organization where there was definitely an in crowd and an out crowd. And it couldn't have been more apparent. And it was a pretty large organization. And so the fact that this divide was there just still to this day amazes me. And the silos that existed and just the oppressive feeling when you would walk in of just like the dark cloud over everything, lots of whispering going on. Mm -hmm. And people that I felt like were just, if you were out, you were surviving. And it was very clear that you were a part of the out crowd. If you were in, you were loud, you were bubbly, you were having a good time. And oh my gosh, inside jokes and all these secrets. And it just gave this really nasty culture on both sides, quite honestly, in or out. I think people were acting inauthentically to who they were and the culture just suffered so much. And I remember knowing within the first two months of being there that this was not a good fit for me. And I also remember one moment where part of the in crowd, which started at the top, someone was leaving. And there were four people standing up at the podium, again, telling all these inside jokes and, you know, handing out all this love to this person, while the rest of us kind of stood around awkwardly like we were observing a television show versus participating huh. in the situation and wishing this person well and wishing them goodbye. And at that moment, I was standing there with my glass of white wine, and I was like, this is it. I'm done. I'm leaving. I can't do this anymore. And so I think that's just an example of of really knowing when it's not not for you, but also just a warning about what can happen. I mean, we all have people we gravitate toward and we have organizations that fit us better than others. And all cultures are different for sure. But this was an example of it was coming from the top and it was coming from the top, not in a good way. And it just left a bad taste in my mouth. And even to this day, it's it's a caution that I offer to anybody. And I don't even know if it still exists that way, but that's my memory of it. And that's a culture that just really became nasty over time. It's like high school. It was like high school. It was very much like high school. Yes. All right. My turn. All right. So my good example, and and honestly, I will say that um, within my 20 years at P&G, I didn't really experience a bad culture because giving props where props are due, everybody at P&G really focuses on really cultivating good culture. So I'll say that. But if I was going to double click down into it, I would say one of my most favorite times was working um, in my agency relationship with Taylor Global. Um, If you guys are looking for a PR agency, I highly, highly recommend them. They're known for their sports PR, but they also do phenomenal lifestyle PR. And just as an indicator, we're going to have two of my former 
people that I uh, connected with, one of my uh, agency um, folks, uh, Stan Gadd and Sam Baer. So they, they've been guests on our podcast. So if that's just an indicator that um, how much I really appreciated them and, and liked them, there you go. Well, and Anna's told you there are just as many people that she doesn't care for. So if you're on the list of care for, you're you're good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're on my they're on the in crowd. Um, and the reason why um, this was such a phenomenal relationship was because. It wasn't the typical, what do we call the agency corporate divisive like nature. And we've talked about that. We've mentioned that, that we have a podcast on that. They really broke the mold on that. And the real reason why was because we were such a highly functioning team. There was a tremendous level of respect. There was a tre- tremendous level of respectful um, transparency. There was integrity. And we could operate as a team without fear of retribution. Mm. And if you listen to the podcast from Sam and Dan, they also alluded to the fact that there was a lot of robust collaboration. Mm-hmm. That didn't mean that it was like a nice fest. Actually, some of the <laughs> some of the conversations back and forth were like really intense. Uh, and but after that was all said and done, we're like, hey, are we in a good place? Yeah, we're in a good place. We, this is a better place than we are. Let's okay, let's go grab a drink or let's you know let, we, we feel good about that. I never for one moment had to worry that um, whatever I was I said or whatever directive I gave and. And as um, they will attest to, I had pretty high expectations. It didn't matter. They never went behind my back. Mm-hmm. Like, I never had to worry that they were going to go behind my back and, like, say something to my boss that actually then drilled down to me, which happened with a lot of my other agencies. You know, so I could actually, like, expect good work out of them. And they actually delivered. I mean, and it was phenomenal to be in that team and create such fantastic work and be able to do so so honestly and not let it get personal. Now, there was a couple of times where I did go um, too far and they had to call me on it, but it was the the partner who was actually um, you know, a, a good colleague of mine too, who had, we had a lot of respect with, from each other. He called me directly and said, hey, you may have gone too far on this. I'm like, well, thank you for telling me. I'll go back and fix it. He didn't call my boss to go tell that and, and to have me like, you know, uh, get in trouble. I mean, it was a highly respectful, very transparent, just team who was all about doing really good work and was committed to anything that it took to get there. So I would say that was probably one of my very favorite relationships. And it um, extended for like 10 years like that I was there and continually wanted to work with them. And then actually um, was able to recommend and endorse them. And they were able to pick up even more work within you know, P&G because that went with them mm-hmm. and people could count on them for the same level of uh, respect, transparency, and just really phenomenal work. So that is my good example. So um, that. I will go to my bad example. And actually, I'm going to take it out of the work environment a little bit because I am just recently been (laughs) engaging with this again. And so my bad example of culture is high school sports. Mm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the reason why, okay, so I I have a 17-year-old and she's gone through and, and progressed through high school sports. I have a eighth grader who's turning into a, uh, who's going to be a freshman and, um, she is going to also engage in high school sports. We have been trying to figure out when we're going to go on vacation for the summer because all of August is now mandatory practice. And then in June and July, they have trainings and then they have these scrimmages that they're ex- they're not expected. Like, it's, let me say it this way. They it's, it's, it's volunteer, quote unquote. You don't have to be there, but you kind of do. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'm like, 
can we not even go on vacation anymore? I'm like, what is wrong now that there's an expectation that a sport that is in the fall is now all year round? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't know like how it was when you were in high school, April, but like I ran cross country and I ran track. When I was in cross country season, I was in season. When season was over, you could go play something else. Mm-hmm. Maybe you would continue to run. Maybe you continue to train. Maybe you did a different sport. But my coaches didn't see me again or I didn't engage with my coaches until track season. In fact, it wasn't allowed. Right. Yeah. And then in the summer, it was like, okay, here's your running schedule for the summer. Sometimes you get together for fun runs, but there was no expectation that you were going to show up at practice on a regular basis. And the training didn't start till like a week or so before school starts, not the whole month of August. Mm -hmm. So I just think that that culture is becoming so intense for these kids that one, they have no flexibility to be Mm -hmm. able to do anything else. Um, They feel obligated to have to participate in everything. They're getting extremely burnt out. I think I've seen some of them where the schoolwork is suffering because they're spending like three hours, four hours at practice. I'm like, when are they getting their schoolwork done? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just becoming too much. It's too much. Now, like my my kids also play club sports or my, my youngest does. And there is an expectation there. Okay, like, fine. She has two to three practices a week. She plays on a couple teams. She has games. We have to go travel for the games. I get that. I appreciate that. I signed up for that. High school sports is totally something different. And I feel like kids should be able to be kids. So that is my little soapbox moment. But it's also a really big indication that that culture, and I won't even get into some of the styles that the coaches are using mm-hmm. nowadays in order Just to coach. where I thought you were going. <laughs> I could do that, but I I don't know who's, yeah, who else will say it. I want to make sure that I'm respectful of people. But there's also, let me just say that there needs to be more education for coaches on how to be better coaches. I'll just leave it at that. Well, and one thing that I, I would say is that I actually think that that approach does the kids no favors in all the ways that Ann said. But also, I remember being in high school and while there was no mandate that out of season you train – you knew that if you took off running for nine months and then tried to go run track, you were going to be at the bottom of the barrel, right? Yeah. And so there was the onus on you as you matured and headed toward adulthood that, oh, okay, like it's more the life lesson stuff, right? Like, and and that, you know, we all have different drivers. Like I remember not wanting to be embarrassed. You know, there's yep. people who are super competitive. That you want to be just good. You want to be good. And so- You learn to build the skills on your own and the discipline for yourself, and then it comes from you instead of what I think is happening now, which is this mandatory, and then, yes, you get burnout, but but also they're just dictated to. And so once that goes away, it's like how then – like those are life lessons that I think are just missing in that approach. I think that's a really good point, and I didn't even think about it that way, but you're right. I mean it it is in a way that's almost militant in its Mm -hmm. nature – And there is no room for the kids to actually assume responsibility for their own development. And I think that's a really good point. And again, I go back to what I was saying sometimes about, you know, leaders being self-indulgent. I think sometimes coaches become Mm self-indulgent in thinking that this is somehow tied to their personal brand or their reason for being or their equity that. And then they have to keep up with others. And so it becomes like this cascading level of like self-importance. Yeah. And it's. I, yeah, and the poor kids suffer as a result, and I don't get it. Still need help in growing your marketing smarts? Contact us through our website, forthright-people.com. 
We can help you become a savvier marketer through coaching or training you and your team or doing the work on your behalf. Please also help us grow the podcast by rating and reviewing on your player of choice and sharing with at least one person. Now, go show off your marketing smarts.